Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. My guest today is retired Marine Corps Colonel Matt Cooper, who had a 30-year career as an artillery officer. Matt shares several different stories and how they shaped him over an almost 30-year career. Matt shares his very first introduction and a colorful exchange with his commanding officer over Naval Academy grads. He then goes on to talk about some of the lessons he learned when he was in the Oklahoma City bombing. Matt then goes on to talk about a few different parts of his career as an instructor and as a commander under a battalion commander who was less than stellar, and then two deployments to Iraq where he learned several different lessons that combined everything he had learned earlier in his career with an overall leadership style that he applied in his final tour as the commanding officer of First Anglico. Stick around till the end. Matt has a very interesting perspective on leadership and shares a leadership trait that he feels is very critical to anyone's success as a leader, but it won't be found in any books. So with no further ado, here's retired Marine Corps Colonel Matt Cooper. Matt, welcome and thanks for being a guinea pig on my first episode. Dave, it's an honor and, and a privilege to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. Uh, I'm happy to be the guinea pig and uh, I feel like any time I get to spend with you is good time and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Well, I, you know, I've Obviously, I know a lot about your career, but I thought a good place to start the episode would be to ask you to kind of go back and give us a highlight, a short recap of your career, starting with, you know, where were you born and raised and then take it from there for us. Sure. So I I was born in Arkansas and I grew up in in a town called Conway, Arkansas not too far from our capital city of Little Rock. Uh, as I was growing up, going through school, uh, normal high school experiences and whatnot, uh, it was always my intent that I would wind up at the University of Arkansas where my father had gone to school, where I'd always been a huge fan. But I had a counselor in high school who suggested that I cast my net a little bit more widely. Uh, he pulled me aside one day and said, look, you've got grades, you've got SAT scores, you've got athletics, you, you should look at your options. And I had two cousins older than me who had graduated from West Point, and I admired those guys greatly. And so I thought it would be cool to be like them, but not just like them. So one day I just pulled the Naval Academy catalog off my counselor's shelf, took it home and read it. And the next morning I went downstairs for breakfast and I told my mom and dad I was going to the Naval Academy. They were in shock to say the least, but they soon, uh, realized what an opportunity it was and they're very supportive and so i i went off to the naval academy in 1986 shortly upon arrival i made the determination that i was going to select my my commission to be in the marine corps i just when i looked at those guys and i watched those guys i felt like it's where i needed to be and where i would best fit in so i never looked back on that even though during that short time that four years that i was at the naval academy i i had to do something unusual you know along with the classes that were right around me uh 89 90 91 i went to ocs as well as the normal stuff at the naval academy it was all worth it after graduating, I took my commission in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was commissioned as an artillery officer coming out of the basic school. First duty station, as you know well, was in 29 Palms with 5th Battalion, 11th Marines, which was just a phenomenal time. 
after that, I went to recruiting duty in Oklahoma City, which I tell people in my almost 25 years in the Marine Corps, there was only one two and a half year stretch that I wasn't either in the capital region of Washington, D.C. in Quantico or in Southern California. And that was that period in the mid 90s in Oklahoma City on recruiting duty, which was a very unique experience as well. And then from there, my career, for the most part, followed your basic ground officer a ground combat officer career path. I, w- I would do a fleet tour or not in the operating forces, as we call it, which in the case of myself and you was an artillery, the artillery field. And then from there, I would go to a support job for a few years. Uh, the best of which was in my time as an instructor at the Marine Corps Captain's Career Course, uh, where as a major, I spent three years. And every year I had a basically a generational group of captains come through that I got to know very well and made uh, some tremendous relationships there with those guys, not just teaching, but learning from them for sure. And then I went back to the operating forces at about the time the war really started hitting its peak in Iraq. I was I was a second in command or the executive officers, we call it the Marine Corps for second battalion, 11th Marines. Worked for a guy who was my mentor and uh, just just one of my what you know one of my most trusted advisors of, of all time. I got named Mike Fraser. He was our commanding officer. So we spent a year together, seven months of which was in Ramadi in 2004 in Fallujah. Uh, very challenging times, but very rewarding times. Came back, spent a little bit of time on the First Marine Division staff, and took command of uh, of, a, of an organization called First Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And we can get into that later. Very unique time, and then then I then I did do my time in Purgatory Day. I spent two years at the Pentagon, but was released probably on probation after <laughs> my performance there, and, and got back to the Marine Corps. And I finished out my time in the Marine Corps as a commanding officer and a colonel for an organization that that was fell under the Marine Corps Recruit Depot of San Diego. So I I was helping train the the next generation of Marines in the form of recruits. And then that was it. And you retired from there. What year was that? (laughs) That was in 2014. And you're correct. I, I retired out of command as a colonel, just decided that was the best thing to do at the time. I did not want to go back to a staff job. I wanted to just explore other opportunities and options. So I handed off my guide on to my replacement and uh, I I left the Marine Corps and I miss it. I miss it every day, but it was the right decision. I know, you know, it's, it's, there's that old saying, right? The Marine Corps is a fickle mistress and sooner or later she tires of us all. That is a fact. kind of, hey, (laughs) maybe you beat her to the punch like you did, but uh, you know, it's, it's a hell of a career. I, like you said earlier, our paths have crossed a few times, but I didn't know you until... After your time at the Naval Academy, and you made that interesting comment about how you did something different than what most people did by going to officer candidate school, which is, as most people know, is I I will take some liberties here and probably uh, open myself up to a blasting from all the uh, enlisted Marines who are listening to this. But it's kind of our version of boot camp. Um, And um, it wasn't normal for uh, Naval Academy guys to go there, right? Is that what you're saying? That's right. There was only a there was only a short window. Graduating classes of 1989, 1990, and 1991. It's it's and that was when a guy named James Webb was our Secretary of the Navy. He was a Naval Academy graduate, uh, heroic record out of Vietnam, and he decided 
he wanted his Naval Academy second lieutenants to perform at a higher level. And that OCS was the way to do that. And and, and I'm sure it was effective if for no other reason. It, it attributed a lot of people who probably didn't have the heart to really put into what the Marine Corps expected. They, they just did. They were doing it because it wasn't surface warfare type stuff. I was at Officer Candidate School the same summer you were. I don't, we were not in the same company together, but I had some Naval Academy guys in my class too, which was interesting because their immersion in the military was so much deeper than mine as an ROTC guy. But um, now I'm really kind of curious to ask you, at the Naval Academy, when you came in as a, um, a plea, but there must have been upperclassmen who were Marines that you saw and they set an example for you and made you want to become a Marine. Um, can you fast forward a little bit in your career and tell me 30 years down there or 20 years down the road, let's say, were any of them generals at the time or did any of them get into an elevated uh, level of leadership in the Marine Corps and, and then you cross paths with them again? Well, they wouldn't, not upperclassmen. Um, there, there are some general officers in the Marine Corps today who were my upperclassmen. I did not know them at the academy at the time. And I'll throw out the names. General Sparky Renforth is one. Sure. Um, general Jim Glenn is another who I, I spent a lot of time with in the Marine Corps, did not know him at Navy. But the one person I did know well at Navy because he was my instructor for two classes was retired General John Allen. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I did cross paths with him both in Iraq when I was a commanding officer at First Anglico. And then again, when he was at CENTCOM and I was a student at the War College, um, you know, we got to uh, break bread together. And uh, he's one of those individuals who, and you've met people like this, Dave, his, his mind is a steel trap. Like he doesn't forget you. It's it's one of the most it's one of those qualities that I am most jealous of when I see in other people and like why he would remember me from the late '80s, but he did. Um, so yeah, there there were there were plenty like that. And I'll go even further and say some of my own classmates. Um, you know, I've got a classmate uh, named Bob Sofchi who's a prior enlisted Marine and he's a general today. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's really interesting to to look at. I have friends that are generals now too, and I I when I close my eyes, I, I just see them as lieutenants and captains and like, like kind of like when I close my eyes and see you too. I mean, you had a lot more hair back then, but you know, uh, I, <laughs> I close my <laughs> eyes and I see you. And, um, but that's interesting because, you know, the whole context of this podcast is talking about leadership and, and moments of leadership. And I want to, I want to bring you through some of the moments that you've had in your career, but I want to touch on one real quick, which is you, you just mentioned how important it was to you, um, that general's ability to remember everything like it was a steel trap. And, and I, that, can we talk about that for a second? Cause I, that is such a huge of component of leadership and it doesn't really match up with our Marine Corps leadership traits and principles, which aren't wholly indifferent than all the other services. They're a little unique, but for the most part, if you know one services, you can kind of figure the other services out too. You know, that's not in there remember names and don't forget details about people. I mean, that's not a leadership trait, but at some point he picked up on it, you picked up on it and it's, it's important. It is. It, it, it's amazing to, to see people like that. I can tell you, and I can give them to you by name. There are three individuals that I served with in the Marine Corps. I didn't serve with, I served for them. They're all seen very senior to me. So maybe that was a characteristic of, of the high performers of the generation ahead of us, Dave. 
But in addition to John Allen, retired General Joe Dunford could do it uh, like nobody I've ever seen. And retired General Tom Jones, who was the director of the captain's career course when I came through as a student, could do it. And it was just it was amazing. That's great. I'm glad I never served with any of those officers because they probably remember everything about me to be all bad stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't forget that <laughs> stuff right. either. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So, so let's talk about how our career paths cross for a while, because you and I had some very interesting sh- shared, unique experiences in a, in a unit together that I know from just sitting around and drinking beers with you and, and laughing a little bit, you and I had some really formative moments together, not side by side, but together in that unit that I think were really instrumental in shaping both of our leadership styles well into our adult years and certainly throughout your career. And I will tell you, certainly in my you know civilian career and my reserve career as well, the standard that was set by the officers that were leading us when we were young lieutenants, I think is worthy of a, of a good conversation. And maybe that's a good place for you to start in, in an attempt to share some of the moments that you've had over your career that you strung together that crystallized those lessons that you learned and where you kind of came out on the back end with your own leadership style as a guy who served almost 30 years. Sure. So, so what I would say is if we take a step back and look at the concept of leadership holistically, this, this is just my opinion and, and my observation over many years is I feel like Leadership is either good or it's bad. There really is no in between because if you're not if you're not leading, you're you're just not leading. It's either positive, good leadership that affects the whole of the organization and moves the organization forward, or it's negative leadership, which more often than not is focused on self, which detracts from the accomplishments of the organization. I was fortunate. And I would even say you were fortunate. I believe this is that more often than not, in the Marine Corps, we had the pleasure of good leadership more often than not. Not always, but more often than not. And as I reflect back on my experiences, one thing, the one thing I've kind of come to believe is that I, at least initially, took good leadership for granted. And what I mean by that is because of the first experience that you and I had when we checked into 5th Battalion, 11th Marines, and we were surrounded by good leaders, I just assumed that that was the way it was going to be all the time. Yes. And that's interesting. And I thought that for a, I thought that for a while. So I think one good leadership, at least in my personal doings, was taken for granted for a while. The other thing I've realized over the years is that even though I did not recognize it at the time, I, when I reflect back, I see myself trying to emulate the people that I saw as good leaders, even though I wasn't doing it consciously. A guy like James Socklaven, a guy from Texas A&M, who was just a, to me, a magnificent leader. And I would find myself like, you know, reflecting back, like I'm, 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 I stole that out of James Socklaven's book. Um, and I didn't even know it at the time. But the bigger thing to me, Dave, is that when you are confronted with bad leadership and, and we can get into some, some stories and some anecdotes, real world anecdotes, those are the guys who give you pause and make you sit up. 
because for guys like you and me and the majority of people who wear our uniform, and I think the majority of people who, who want to succeed every single day, when you experience somebody like that, you take note because you want to be so conscious about, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to do that. Nobody's ever going to compare me to him. And that's that's sort of what I've you know come to take away from my 25 years in the Marine Corps. So if we go back to let me just a quick story about Colonel James Socklaven, who another retired colonel. He was our first battalion commander. He was lieutenant colonel and CO, commanding officer, fifth battalion, eleventh Marines. When young second lieutenant Armstrong and second lieutenant <laughs> yeah. Cooper checked into the battalion, and I will never forget this. So I go. Check in with the XO. His name's his name was Dave Schumick. Recently sure. passed yeah. away. God rest him. Um, he sends me in to see the colonel, and I go in with my OQR, my which is the officer's qualification record, because back then everything was hard copy, right? And it was it was just a, it was a folder, and we were second lieutenants. We hadn't done anything, so there were literally like two pages of in there of where I'd gone to school, what my degree was in and where I'd finished at the basic school in Fort Right. That's it. But I'm not kidding you. I stood there at the position of attention for what seemed like 15 minutes while Colonel Socklaven looked at those two pages. I mean, he just took forever. And I realized now what he was doing. We finally looked up. He said, Lieutenant Standardese, and I went to a modified parade rats. And he said, son, you went to the Naval Academy? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, well, in my experience, two kinds of officers come out of the Naval Academy, shit hot and pieces of shit. And I says, I suggest you decide right now which one you're going to be. Wow. I don't know if I ever heard that yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I mean, it stuck with me. And I, it's funny. We, we, we crossed paths at a reunion years later, and he, he remembered saying it. And it didn't insult me. It didn't offend me. Um, I, I knew, even at that point in time, that there was there – was, I don't know that animus is the right word, but there was skepticism, you know, some Marine Corps or artillery or academy graduates coming into the Marine Corps based on what was the driving force that, that led them to service like Marine Corps. And some some underperformed. Some were there to do their time and, and, and move on. And and so I understood what he was doing and, and how he was doing it. And, you know, it, it, in this day and age, in the year 2021, it seems a little harsh. Uh, maybe it wouldn't fly as well, but back then I knew exactly what he was doing and I admired him for it. And I think his leadership was as high quality as anybody I ever saw in my 25 years. And again, my, my takeaway from that was it, it, it lulled me into a false sense that it was always going to be like that. Throughout 511, you had a couple of commanding officers though. I think you were lucky enough to have experienced a pretty steady group of good leaders. And so I can see, because I had a little bit of a different experience, I can see how you would look at that and say, this is the way it is everywhere. And even though you and I were in 511 uh, at the same time for a while, we separated a little bit because you ended up going on a deployment over to Okinawa. So there was a there was a time in 511 that even though we were in the same unit, we didn't serve together. It, you know, it's interesting because I look back on 511 as well, and I think the same thing, you know, some of the guys 
that were there were, were such outstanding leaders that they imprinted in ways that I still carry forward through to this day. And I will say that like, you know, then Captain Rob Davis was probably one of the most influential people in my life. And he probably doesn't even know that. I, I, I share that sentiment with you about the leaders in that unit kind of setting the expectation that it was going to be like that. And you and I both went on to find out that it's really not like that. No, for sure. And, and, and to acknowledge your point, Dave, we, we, you and I did have very different experience or not very different. We had different experiences there because we had different battery commanders, which that's, that's the commanding officer in between us and the battalion commander. I had a guy named Jeff Crockett and then, a, and then, a, and then a guy named Rob Gates for the majority, overwhelming majority of my time. And right. two of the finest human beings I've ever known in my life. And I'll give you a quick story. Just to kind of clarify, you and I were 23 years old at the time. I mean, we're talking about when you and I were 23 years old. So these larger than life leaders who are so impactful, they're maybe 30 Mm-hmm. Maybe. That's correct. Maybe, maybe 30, maybe, maybe late twenties. But when I was, when it, my second battery commander was, was a guy named Rob Gates and we've remained close for, since this time period, I was his executive officer or his second in command. I don't know how you would want to equate that to the civilian world day. Maybe uh, the COO to the CEO. Sure. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. That's a like good, that. that's a good one. But the executive officer, officer has a, you know, a very pretty scripted role to play when you, when the when the battery goes to the field to conduct training. There's certain things that that executive officer does. One of which is to count the ammunition when it comes into the position. So the way that worked back then was we had ammunition techs, is what we called them. They would go sign for the ammunition that had been allocated to us at the ammunition supply point. And they would bring it to the field and meet us at our first location where we were going to start conducting training. I, as executive officer, would go inventory all the ammunition to make sure what they signed for was there. And you counted ammunition boxes and then freestanding ammunition. So if the if it was in a box and the box was banded, you didn't cut the bands. You assumed that if it was, you know, a box of fuses, that it would have the correct count of fuses in there. Right. Well, in this particular field op, we got to our third firing position, and I get a call to my vehicle from one of the guns, and it says, hey, XO, we're missing a fuse. And, you know, my initial thought is, okay, we'll find it. You guys, you know, it's in the cab of the truck, or, you know, somebody just put it in their cargo pocket. Right, because they're small. They're, a fuse is something that screws onto the top of a big 100-pound projectile. And while it may sound insignificant, in our world as artillerymen, like you lose a fuse, you've lost something very serious. Very serious. Very serious. I, I, at first, I thought, well, this is no big deal. We'll find it. And so I went down there and, and we tore his position apart and couldn't find it. And so then we had to go to the whole gun line and then we had to go back to the ammo trucks. And it now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, this is really serious day. Right. Yeah. To the point that we canceled the training and sent the remaining ammo back to the ammunition supply point, brought everybody back into the barracks, went through everybody's pack again with an investigating officer at this point in time. Right. Right. Because the battalion had found out what happened, and by the time we got back, they had already assigned an investigating officer. It was the first time I had had my rights read to me as an officer in the Marine Corps, which was an earth-shattering event. Right, which is very similar to what people see on TV. Like, it's not that you have the right to remit, but it's very—it's basically you know it's serious. 
Um, yes. Yeah. It's not, it's not dissimilar to what you see on TV when you have your rights read to you. Um, because yeah, it means you're a, a suspect, potentially yeah. a suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And you have, and you have rights under the uniform code of military justice, just like a civilian does under the constitution. Just that's, it's just, it's similar, but different. And I was, I was distraught because again, I was the executive officer. It was my responsibility to ensure an accurate count of ammunition. And we had gone through every Marine's personal effects and that fuse was not found. I knew exactly what had happened, but there was no way to prove it. And that is the individuals at the ammo supply point made a mistake. And when they were reboxing fuses and rebanded it, they missed one. Now, could you prove it? No. But I was distraught for a couple of days waiting on the results of the investigation. And I'll never forget, I got home back to my apartment on, I guess, day two. It was probably 18, 1900 at night. My phone rings. This is, again, landline, no caller ID. Um, I answer the phone, and it's my battery commander, Rob Gates. He said, he said, I'll never forget this. He said, AXO, listen, he goes, he goes, you need to snap the fuck out of it and get back to being yourself. He goes, he goes, if these guys want to hang us, they can piss up the rope first because we didn't do anything wrong. He said, so quit dragging your ass around with, with your head down and then start being my XO immediately. I'm just like, wow. And what an amazing guy. Because you and I both, Dave, we had worked with other people before and after that. It would have been very easy to throw me under the bus to save his own career because we didn't know what was going to happen at the time. He could have easily just said, hey, this is an XO battery gunnery sergeant function and they failed me. And I'm going to relieve them. Right. And because one of the things that's unique to the military, and I don't find it that unique in the civilian world, which is when you are the commanding officer, you are in charge of something, especially as an officer, you're responsible for everything that happens and fails to happen under your command. So that story means that Gates would have probably been relieved if it was elevated and somebody determined and, and you would have been swept up in it. But at the end of the day, he's the one that's going to stand in front of his boss and get fired and have his career ended. You may have two, but and he had nothing to do with it. And that's that's really unique in the military and puts a tremendous amount of pressure on people. And I think can actually encourage some bad behavior and bad leadership because in those situations, a lesser leader could have very possibly gone into survival mode bingo and and not done the right thing because he had an uh, an incentive that wasn't aligned with what he yeah, should have been doing that's right exactly the term i was looking for survival mode and, and rob gates didn't do it he he made the clear and conscious decision that if my executive officer is going to go down i'm going to go down with him because i believe in him right it meant a lot to me then and to this day it still does yeah well and, and it sounds like that was one of your very early moments right uh, one yeah. of your moments in leadership where you where you got something got imprinted upon you and it wasn't really explicit it was it was an observation it wasn't no one sat you down and said this is the way to be a good leader you just it was observational absolutely but that was uh you know that was a that was a very defining point for me in terms of you know, okay who am i going to be and who am i going to be like who does things that i, I want to be i want people to say hey he's kind of like rob gates or he's kind of like yeah. jim sockleben you know i never wanted to be somebody else but i certainly wanted to take 
good things that they demonstrated on a daily basis and emulate them the best I could. Yeah, it's it's um that's interesting because when and we're going to talk more about leadership traits and principles over the course of this whole thing. But one of the things that I find as a as a huge component of leadership that isn't part of our, you know, you open up a book and you read about leadership. It's the leaders who had the ability to be themselves and act like themselves rather than put on some sort of facade of leadership, some, you know, big boisterous, full of gung ho, let's call it. It's always the guys that make the impression on you and set a good example in a way that they're not trying to teach you anything. They're just being themselves and being good leaders. And it's the authenticity of that really impacts what well, really impacted me when I worked with um, really genuine people. And it sounds like, you know, this was an example of that too. And a, and a serious moment for you. I agree so much with everything you just said. I, and I was going to hit on that too, that authenticity and, and being yourself is, is so key and critical in my opinion to successful leadership because to do something else is to assume your people are stupid and they won't see through it and they're not, and they will see through it and they, they will, they will quickly realize that you're, you're putting on a show and, and the response will not be what you hope to see. So from five eleven, you and I both went our separate ways. It's, it's actually worth mentioning that you and I lived together for a while uh, sure. when we were lieutenants and that was fun. We had a great time. And, and uh, you know, before we move on from five eleven, I can't, I, I want to give a shout out a little bit to some of the guys from 5.11 because I'll tell you, and I know you agree with this, but like, what a fantastic group of guys. What, just what, what an amazing, and we're all still friends for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there are different rings, I think, of, of people that we're all still in touch with, but you're in touch with guys from 5.11 that I'm not and vice versa. But if we all got together, just what a great group of people, um, not only the lieutenants, but the staff and COs. Right. Yeah. So before we move uh-huh. on from from the, the uh, from the five eleven days, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the moments you had as a brand new officer, as a second lieutenant, with some of the fantastic staff non commissioned officers that we had in that unit because we had a lot. Sure. And I, I think I think I probably had more than my fair share in, in Quebec Battery, and and when I say that, I mean. We had staff NCOs, and here's what they taught me, and I always carried this forward, is we had staff NCOs who felt compelled and obligated to train their lieutenants. Mm-hmm. And until that lieutenant shut them down and, and you know proved that he was not going to listen to them because they were they weren't commissioned officers, they would they would go out of their way to teach you, to train you, to show you how to do it better. And to show you how to take care of the Marines in a way that was both functional and yet at the same time held the Marines accountable. I'll tell you a story, and I don't know about you, Fort Sill, when we went through our schooling, our artillery school, there was just so much being thrown at you that, you know, I got to a point where I just, just got to pass this test. You know, I just got to pass this test so I can graduate. And, and there were some things I didn't learn. One of the things I didn't really have a master a mastery of when I left Fort Sill in the artillery school was shifting trails. And what that means to the folks who aren't artillerymen, and most will not be, is that it's when basically when you take your howitzer and you spin it around so much that you basically lose your sight picture and you have to redefine or reestablish your sight picture. I did not understand how to do that. And in 30 minutes in the back of a Humvee and 29 
Palms, California, in a pouring rain, Staff Sergeant Joe Oliva on an MRE box taught me how to do that, and it made such perfect sense. And, I mean, I, from that day on, I was a master of it. I mean, it just like, it just, it, the light bulb came on. It's like, you know, I spent three weeks trying to grasp this with a gunnery instructor at Fort Sill. I never understood it. Now, 30 minutes in the backseat of a Humvee with a staff sergeant in the pouring rain, just drawing it out for me and what it looks like and, and what you're doing. It's like, I, I totally get it. And I, I have countless stories about staff and SEALs like that. And that's what I would always when I, and the times that I was fortunate to be in command going forward from there, Dave, I would tell my staff and COs, I consider it your sacred obligation to train my lieutenants and my junior officers. And if you get to a point where they're refusing to accept your training, you come come talk to me or the sergeant major, because I'll, I'll deal with that separately. Don't think I don't consider it your responsibility because you have, you guys have a wealth of knowledge that these guys are not going to pick up in a schoolhouse. Right. Can you recall any instances where a staff and CEO actually did come to you and say, hey, officer so-and-so is, you know, you told me to come see you if, if I'm dealing with an officer who is not listening to me. Did that ever happen? And, and if it did, how did you address it with the officer? Yeah, it did happen. It did happen. And in fact, it happened to the staff and CEO that I'm closer to than any other in the world. Um, and, and one of my officers who just refused, just didn't want to listen, didn't want to take the advice of the staff NCO. And, you know, the thing that really made me sad is this guy was not a bad officer. He was just, he was hard headed and thought he was smarter than everybody. And, and I, and I pulled him aside and I, I counseled on him and I said, this is going to ultimately show up as a weakness, even more so than it is right now. And it's, it's going to cost you moving forward in the future as you grow in the Marine Corps, because when you stop listening to people, they stop talking. And that's the last thing on this earth that you want to have happen to you as a commander in the Marine Corps. What rank, roughly? Young officer or? Yeah, he was captain. He captain, was okay. Co- he was one of my Anglico guys. Okay, yeah. So he had some lieutenant time, and but yeah, wasn't brand new. That, that's interesting. He was, a young, he was a young captain, pre-battery command. Just like, you know, most of those guys that show up to Anglico are. Right, right. And we're going to get to Anglico in a few minutes, but we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with 511 because, you know, what I, what I heard you say was you had some fantastic moments with, uh, with your battery commander. You had some fantastic moments with, with other officers, especially your check-in. Uh, and, uh, and then you had some fantastic moments with, with staff NCOs who taught you and mentored you, um, right. which is leadership in its own right. Um, right. And sometimes we forget leadership is, is not only leading, but also being receptive to leadership. And I'm sure that those things, you know, really imprinted, a, printed on you. But, you know, so now we're moving forward and, and you served two or three years, right, at 5'11". And, and we both left roughly the same time. I, I left in June of 1993. Is that about the same time? So that's yeah, right. you left yeah. about you left about six months in front of me. I left in December of '93. So you were you were at Anglico for about six months before I left the uh, battalion. Okay, and then when you left the battalion, then your next this was the Oklahoma City posting that you were talking about before, where you um, this was one of your very few times outside of California or the National Capital Region where you served, Correct. and that was obviously uh, not something that you were ever expecting to experience that you did your leadership, your medal, 
were tested during your time there because you were actually in the Oklahoma City building when it was attacked and the bomb went off. I don't think that you were ever thinking or anybody was ever thinking that that would have ever happened, let alone be the moment in time where your leadership and your guts were tested, but they were. For sure. So, so when it came time for me to leave 5th Battalion, 11th of Marines, like I said, you, you had already gone. And when I was told, hey, you need to call the monitor. And for those folks who aren't in the Marine Corps, don't understand what that is. The monitor is an individual at Quantico, at headquarters of the Marine Corps, who basically controls the assignments for officers when they move from one job to another. And I called this individual and he said, look, he goes, I can offer you the recruit depot or I've got a list of recruiting stations. He goes, don't ask for anything else. If you're not interested, put in your papers and, and move on down the road. And that's a true story. And uh, and Rob Gates, my battery commander, who we talked about, he had been on recruiting duty. And he said, you know, he, t- he told me, he said, XL, I think you should go on recruiting duty. There is just more growth and in, in learning for an officer there than there is at MCRD. And so all I did, Dave, was... I got the list of recruiting stations that had openings and I picked the one closest to Arkansas that I could find because I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, might as well get close to home where I can maybe spend some time on the weekends with my family and, you know, see my friends that I grew up with from time to time. So I picked Oklahoma City and our region covered all of Oklahoma and the southern one-third of Kansas. That that was our recruiting territory. And, of course, I didn't know what recruiting in the mid-'90s was going to be like at that time, but you recall, and your listeners will as well, we were going through a tremendous downsizing. Uh, the military was not looked upon favorably. Recruiting just fell into a, a, a dismal period where it was extremely difficult to make our assigned mission, and I did not get time to go see my family. You worked every weekend. Sundays were off, but that's about it. Um, so it was a challenging time. But just like everywhere else I've been, the Marines were good. The overwhelming majority of them wanted to succeed and perform their assigned mission uh, in a manner that would reflect positively upon them and our unit in the Marine Corps. Uh, It was just a very challenging time. Right. And it must have been a whole different level of leadership to be leading staff NCOs and some officers as well in the mission of recruiting which in civilian world is synonymous with sales. I mean, it's essentially sales, right? You are selling somebody on the opportunity to join the Marine Corps and, and, and all of the great things the Marine Corps has to offer, right? Uh, see the world. That's a whole different level of leadership, right? Because now I'm sure you got some training, but mm-hmm. you're, now you're leading people in selling, which is not something that we learn about through stories of Chesty Puller or uh, at, at the basic school or anything else or in our previous command. So nothing so something must have been imprinted on you in a way that you were able to transition it into some leadership skills in the recruiting world. Yeah. So just like everything else in the Marine Corps, if it's not something that comes naturally through officer candidate school, boot camp, or the basic school, the Marine Corps takes a very methodical approach to it and breaks it down. And for lack of a better term, at least back then, Barney style is very numbers driven. You know, the expectation was... You, the, the recruiter would make X number of phone calls a day. And that X number of phone calls should result in X number of interviews scheduled for tomorrow. And of those scheduled interviews, X percentage of them should show up. And of those who show up for the interview, you should be able to convince X percentage of those guys to go take the ASVAB and take a physical. 
And it just, and so it just went down from there until you got somebody to sign up. Uh, it came naturally to some guys. Most of them, it didn't. The data showed that the, the Marines who followed the script could be successful. Some areas were much easier to recruit than others. If you're in South Texas, that's a much easier place to recruit, you know, certain areas in, in Oklahoma. I mean, there's a cultural bias towards the Marine Corps and, and some groups within the United States where you, sometimes your dad would bring the kid in and say, he's going to be a Marine. You know, right. And, but, but a lot of times there's a lot more hard work than that. And sure. um, the leadership challenge there, when you talk about comparing it to sales, it's not even really a comparison because that's exactly what it is. But, you know, I've sold other stuff in, in my life since the, in the short time I've been retired from the Marine Corps. But it's nothing that I was passionate about. It's nothing that was part of my soul or my DNA or who I am. There's stuff I believe in or I wouldn't have tried to sell it. But it wasn't something that defined me. So you don't have the same sense of failure or disappointment when you don't make the sale as you do when you're selling the Marine Corps. And it's not just the Marine Corps you're selling, it's yourself. When you get that negative response, it, it hurts. And, and to keep those guys motivated was a constant challenge. And, uh, and that's what it was all about. And you were, you were, I think I would imagine that one of the difficult things about that job too, is you're not co-located with a lot of the guys that you're leading, right? No. I mean, they're not no. there. You were in, you were in Oklahoma city, but you just said you had a big region. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not only are you leading Marines in, in accomplishing their mission of recruiting, but you've got to do it telephonically at that point. That's absolutely um, right. Yeah. Um, a lot of time on the telephone, um, every weekend on the road to go mm -hmm. see one of the one of their stations to spend time with the Marines and, and try to keep them going. But um, it was a challenging time for sure. And I remember as, as a segue here, if you don't mind, many, many years ago when you when you told me some of the story about the Oklahoma City tragedy that it started that day started with a Marine walking in and asking to see you, but you didn't really know him all that well. That started off a coincidence. Yeah, I knew him as well as I knew just about any Marine at that time, which, like you said, was you know, relationships garnered through telephone conversations and weekends. So that particular morning, it was about 8.15 or 8.30, and a Marine walked in. I was the operations officer of the recruiting station at that time. So my job, especially at that time of the day, was I would I would take in the numbers that I just told you about. I would find out how many, how many interviews did you have yesterday, how many do you have scheduled for tomorrow, how many uh, recruits do you have scheduled to take the test? So I'm taking all the numbers so we can try to formulate a projection for what the next day will look like because you're always projecting. And, uh, and so my ops section was a big open area with multiple desks. We were very, very fortunate on that day that a lot of our Marines were out and on the road at a conference. But this staff sergeant walks into my office. He, he'd gotten off the elevator. When you got off the elevator and you walked into our headquarters office, if you took a left, that took you into the command deck where the COXO Sergeant Major had their offices. If you took a right, you came into my area, the ops section, which, I, like I said, was wide open. And he takes a right and he comes in. And it was apparent that this guy had gotten in a fight and had just gotten his ass kicked. His shirt was ripped. His lips were busted up and bleeding. He had black eye. And here's what had happened. It's his... His substation and another substation, both in Oklahoma City, one's on the north side of Interstate 40, the other's on the south side of Interstate 40, they would meet every Wednesday morning at Tinker Air Force Base and play basketball for PT. 
And he had gotten in a fight with another Marine from the other station. And the other Marine had clearly stumped a mud hole in this cat. And uh, he walks into my area. He looks at me. He goes, sir, he goes, I need to talk to you. He said, I don't want to talk to the CEO. I don't want to talk to Sergeant Major. I don't want to talk to anybody else. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, Staff Sergeant. And I had this little side office right off my main area that I used to interview applicants who required a waiver for any reason to come into the Marine Corps. I would take them in there in private so I could talk to them about their drug use or their criminal record or whatever it was that required necessitated the waiver. I could speak to them privately and, and not embarrass them. So I took him in that little side office and we were sitting there talking and he just basically took this as an opportunity to, to start venting and bare his soul about how he felt like he was being mistreated. He was the best recruiter in the station and he never got any credit that the other guys got it was just dave it was going on and on and the whole time this was happening again this is the busiest part of my day this is you know 8 45 it was getting to and i could hear randy guzman who was the executive officer of the recruiting station he'd been the former opso before i got there and he had fleeted up gotten promoted up to the xo billet he was sitting at my desk doing my job he's taking numbers for me and i could hear him doing it and I, and I felt bad about that because he had he had his own XO stuff he needed to be doing. But he had walked into the ops section and asked where I was. Somebody told him I was in the back room with this Marine talking. And so he, he sat down at my desk and started doing my job. And, and multiple times during this conversation, I wanted to tell the staff, hey, we got to end it here. You know, the XO's, you know, covering down for me. I got to get out there and relieve him. And, uh, and I didn't. I never did. I sat there and kept listening to him. And at 9.02, the bomb went off. And Randy Guzman was killed sitting at my desk, and my ops chief, Ben Davis, was killed sitting at his desk, which was only about 10 feet away. And the staff sergeant and I were spared because we were right on the edge of the area of the building that did not collapse and not pancake down. So, yeah, and I, I hesitated for many years to tell that story because I didn't know how much Randy Guzman's family knew about it. But I came to find out they, they, they knew, and mm -hmm. they certainly didn't blame me. It wasn't anything that I had done. But still, it was a pretty heavy, you know, deal. And the rest of that day is, is sort of just a blur and sort of, you know, goes into history. One thing I will tell you about the Marine Corps, and I don't know if this can translate specifically to other walks of life or whatnot, is that the training you receive is real. It is legitimate and it will get you through if you trust it. At that point in time, I had not seen combat. I had not seen anything that remotely resembled combat. You know, if you recall by this time, you'd been to Somalia. I, I didn't do that. I didn't do any of that stuff. But I felt like when that happened, I, your instincts kick in. And if you trust them, they will get you through. There was another Marine, a sergeant, a guy named Tad Snedeker, who, like me, was the least wounded of all the Marines. And we had one civilian in there at the time least wounded. And so we just started getting people out of the building. Well, the first thing we did was we conducted an assessment of who's missing and we determined Randy and Ben were missing. So we got everybody out who was still up there, which included digging, actually no kidding, digging some people out of some, a lot of concrete. And how high up were you on the, in the we building? Sixth floor. Sixth floor. Okay. Once we got everybody out, we turned to to try to see if we could figure out where Ben and Randy might have wound up, which of course we couldn't. And within 30 minutes, we were escorted, you know, basically under guard. We were told either leave the building or be arrested. They thought there was a second bomb, and we told them we can't leave. We've got two Marines missing. These are Oklahoma City's, you know, finest. You're like, guys, you got to leave, or we're gonna, we're gonna, you're gonna leave with cuffs on. And so, so we left, and 
we went to the hospital and got stitched up and got patched up. I actually went uh, that afternoon. I went to the reserve center and I shipped three kids to boot camp. Wow. I didn't know that part of the story. And I know you said the day was a blur, but, but, and you're a modest person. So, uh, but you know, I'll just say it. You were awarded the Navy Marine Corps medal, which is the highest medal for heroism in a non-combat situation. What you did wasn't insignificant. I know it may seem like a blur, but it wasn't uh, a blur to a lot of people that you saved that day. And that's leadership. And, and that, that was obviously a moment for you that must have crystallized some things that I'm sure became very important to you later on in life as a commanding officer and then going into combat because, well, you said it wasn't combat. I don't know how much less brutal it was than combat. There were clearly some lessons that you learned from that and you said about training and everything, but it, it must have gone on to formulate some leadership style that you applied later in life? Sure. I'll tell you the number one thing, Dave, is it it taught me you have to keep your head because I did later on. There were things in Iraq that challenging, but I I always, when I harkened back to that day in Oklahoma city, the, the calmer head will prevail you know, know your surroundings and know your people and, and don't panic. And, and Because if you do, if you show that, then you're going to lose your, the support and the confidence of your people. That, that was the biggest thing to take away from that whole ordeal. Well, something I heard you say too, and you may not have taken it away, but I'm, I'm going to highlight it because I think it's important for people listening to take away, which is, you know, like one of the very basic tenets of leadership that you're drilled into, I'm sure from the day you walked onto the the grounds of the Naval Academy, which is like accountability of your people. When that happened in Oklahoma City, the tragedy, your first reaction was to rely on your training. And the first thing you thought about was accountability of my people. And I don't know if that is something that people would naturally think about had they not been a part of an organization that drilled that in as leadership. And when you say like, you know, you relied on your training and you trusted your training, that obviously kicked in. For as little, as as small of a thing as that may sound like accountability of people, it was one of your first instincts. Oh, it was the very first instinct. But uh, Sergeant Seneca and myself, like, okay, are we missing anybody? And we started, we started a head count. We figured out, okay, we're missing two. Okay, well, let's, let's get these other folks out of here and then get them triaged. And then we got to come back and find those two guys. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I know it's, uh, I know it's a painful one and it certainly isn't a great memory, but I, I do think it's, it's uh, valuable for listeners to, to hear and, and, and understand how, our training as leaders can become very instinctive, even at a very early age, because you were still in your in your twenties. So, so you finished up Oklahoma City, and I know there was, and and it's probably insignificant to the to the conversation, but there was some follow on too. You actually had to go to court and things like that. And I did. I testified at the trial of both Timothy McVeigh. And Terry Nichols, I sure did. You know, and of course that wasn't by choice; that was by subpoena. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Subpoena, you go. Well, I wouldn't see you denying going in there and testifying against them, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I'll just tell you the funny story: is when I was first subpoenaed uh, to go testify at the McVeigh trial, they it was the day that Carol and I, my wife, Carol, we were scheduled to move from Quantico. I just finished the captain's career course to go back to Camp Pendleton. And they had me testifying that day. And I just, this was how stupid and dumb I was, naive, I guess, at the time. When when she called me, I said, well, I can't do it that day. I've got movers coming. We'll have to pick another day. And she said, you can either be here 
or the U.S. Marshals will show up at your house and arrest you. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. I'll hey, Carol, there. sorry. You know. <laughs> good luck with good luck with the move, babe. Probably not the last move she had to do by herself, too. I'll imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So from from Oklahoma City, now you're you're captain, right? Right. Um, and then you went. What? Wh- where'd you go next? It was in well, school. I went, I went to school, spent a year, at school, and then then I went back to the operating forces. I did a year with the Eleventh Mew as their fire support officer, and then I went to Two Eleven, where I had my bad command tour followed by a year as the battalion operations officer the s3 so then on to 211 which is uh second second battalion 11th marines right which is an artillery battalion located in camp pendleton california great reputation has always been revered in the artillery community but you came in at a tough time to 211 i did i did and i I tell this story Uh, i spent some time as a battery commander which was both rewarding and challenging. Um, And then I moved up to become the operations officer, which was uh, something I was very proud of because I was selected to do that. But I I tell people, I I mean, the takeaways from this era, this point of my career are so concrete to me that when you're weak at the top, I mean, weak at the very top and really weak, it it is so hard to impossible to get out of the downward spiral, to succeed, to to insulate your people from what they see. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, if you fast forward a couple of years and we'll come back to this. I was in the Pentagon one day and I'd, I'd gone to the gym and I worked out and I'd showered. I was getting dressed and who walks up, takes a locker right next to me, um, but a guy named Joe Dunford, who at that time was was... He was the uh, ACMAC at the time, and uh, and we're talking, and and the name Brad Hall came up. And Brad Hall's a peer of mine. You know him well. I can't remember why his name had come up. General Dunford had just run into him or something. I think Brad had just gotten his job as the uh, congressional liaison. Um, but anyway, General Dunford and I were talking. I said, you know, General Dunford, I said, a few years ago, I was in an artillery battalion, that had Mike Frazier as the executive officer, Brad Hall as the fire support coordinator to 5th Marines. I was the operations officer, and Mike Grice was the battalion S4. And Joe Dunford looks at me and he goes, that's the best artillery lineup I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. And I said, and I said, you know what, General? It's the worst battalion I've ever seen. I said, not just the worst battalion I've ever been associated with, but it's the worst battalion I've ever seen. He's like, really? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I said that the leadership at the top was so bad that as, as hard as we tried to protect our people, to insulate our people, to, you know, drive common sense, it, you, you could not mask what was going on at the very top. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we talk about bad leadership. We started this talking about bad leadership and bad leadership to me is defined by putting self first. Um, back then we used to do these exercises in 29 palms in the desert called combined arms exercises. And they were two and a half days long at the time. So you had two full days and some night training. And then the third day was normally like a half a day to mid afternoon when the exercise would be ended and everybody would go back to the, the area where we were, were living and sleeping um, and pack up and get ready to go home. Well, this particular battalion commander 
I mean, we had done two of these exercises back to back. He never saw the third day of training. And the reason for that is because he had to get back to the camp first so he could use the showers before all the Marines got there because he did not, he felt it was beneath him to use a dirty shower or to shower with Marines. Wow. And so when, when I would roll in with Mike Frazier and my ops chief and Mike Grice, cause we, we, we would be the last vehicle in cause we would wait for the guys to pick up all the trash. He would be sitting there in a lawn chair, a civilian lawn chair, wearing aviator glasses and just his silky shorts, sunbathing as we all drove in, surveying it. And, and you, you can't you can't hide that from the Marines. You can't when you put yourself first, it, it, it's going to be known and and it's going to have incredibly negative consequences. Well, you know, we, we talk about those core leadership traits and principles and and the word character is not in there, but it's probably one of the biggest components of leadership that you can imagine. And it doesn't yeah. sound like he had any character. And I think that's, that's an important thing for you and I to spend just a few minutes talking about, which is uh, you cannot be a leader unless you are of good character. And when you place yourself before others, that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. I mean, there, there, you know, I don't care if you're a civilian or if you're in the military, the Marine Corps, the Navy, whatever. If you feel compelled to put yourself first and you need to find something to do in life that only involves you to the best you can. And even though you were, you were a witness to some really bad leadership there, there's lessons to be learned, right? Oh yeah. Tremendous lessons. Like I said, it's, it's the, the really bad leadership that gives you pause and makes you sit up and take notice and think, okay, I'm never going to forget this. You know, I, I took the good leaders for granted and maybe I should have paid more attention to them, but I'm never going to forget this. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of what I was going to get to. And I alluded to it before when I, you know, back in the 511 story, but you know, I saw some bad leadership in 511. Uh-huh. I know you did. Yeah. When you and I weren't together, I learned, I, okay. I didn't like what I learned, but I learned a lot from watching some bad leadership and, mm -hmm. uh, and you did too. So I think one of the points I, I want to suss out of this is, you know, for people who are listening and early on in their careers too, is do not discount the lessons that can be learned if you have a bad boss, because there, you can turn some lemons into lemonade with that down the road when you are a, uh, when you're a commander yourself, because you will remember as much about the good things like Captain Gates at the time as you probably remembered about the bad stuff of your battalion commander when you were a battery commander in this story. Absolutely. Uh, 29 Palms. And, and you will get through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. The, one of the nice things about the military that doesn't equate to the civilian world is if you're working for or with somebody you don't like, all you have to do is wait around probably 12 to 18 months because one of you will leave. And that makes it a little bit easier to deal with in the, in the Marines tougher to deal with in the civilian world where, you know, leadership has its own unique challenges too. But yeah, there's, there is, there is a lot to be learned from bad leadership too. And sometimes we discount that or, or don't, don't really recognize it. Well, I absolutely agree, Jay. I, and, I, and believe me, we all took away a lot. We all took away a lot. And you know what? He, he got his, he got his day. It was eventually recognized by the people above him and 11th Marine Regiment. And he was held accountable for it and his career pretty much ended there. Yeah. Who is the, who is the uh, regimental commander at the time when you were 211 as battery commander? 
So the guy who came in as I was leaving, I had, I had Ed Lesnowitz sure, yeah. at the time and he was leaving just as I was. But the guy who came in after that was an individual named Ben Saylor. I'll never forget. I found out through a reliable source that one of the comments, one of the, one of the comments he put on this Marine's evaluation was nobody cares more about this Marine's career than he does. Wow. Who said that? That was Sailor? Ben, or that was Ben Sailor. Wow. The, the regiment cow. commander on one of his battalion, on, a, on one of his battalion commanders. And, 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 and it, it, you know, clearly it resonated. And then that was that, that was the end of the story. A big difference between leadership in the military and leadership in the um, civilian world where I am going to, where I'm going to take my hats off to leader leadership in the civilian world, having an advantage over, over the Marine Corps is that I saw a lot of tolerance of bad leaders by senior people, whether they were staff and CEOs or officers, where there was, I mean, if, if you're, if you're making a comment like that on an evaluation, why didn't you just fire him? Why did you tolerate it? If that, if that was your observation of him, how did he not get fired? I mean, there's no answer to that. I'm not asking you to answer that, but. That's a great point. Yeah. I have seen way more firings in my civilian time than I ever saw in the Marine Corps ever. I mean, I can't, I could probably count on one hand the number of people I know who were relieved in the Marine Corps for performance. And I could count on one hand the number of times of people I saw fired for performance in a year in the civilian world. And so kind of it kind of an interesting there's there's something to dig into there about why why do we have a culture of tolerance in an organization where we kind of pride ourselves on being such great leaders. That is worth digging into. And I can't answer it other than I, I, there is a reluctance to create more messiness. And I think there is, you know, I think in a case like the one I just described, right or wrong, I think the general feeling was we just got to make sure he doesn't do any more damage between now and the time his tour is over and we'll take care of him at that time. I'm not saying that's right, but I think, I think that's a common, you know, right. Interesting. Well, not, not something that you and I are going to solve, but definitely worth, uh, definitely worth mentioning. I mean, as people are listening and, and, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out your own leadership style, maybe you should pre-plan what you're going to do. If you come across somebody when you're in charge and they're a bad leader, you know, are you going to tolerate it? Are you going to allow 150 Marines? No, that was your battery. So call it like less than a thousand, let's just call it 850 Marines in an artillery battalion. Is that fair? Is that a fair number? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You don't let them suffer. That's interesting. So, and and an interesting comment. And then as just as a quick connection there. uh, So then Lieutenant Colonel Lesowitz was my CO in Somalia before I detached and went off to the infantry battalion. But I went over to Somalia with then Lieutenant Colonel Lesowitz when he had 311. Yeah, great man. Great, great man. I thought so too. And older, I, I I think he was a Vietnam vet. He was. He was yeah. a Kaysan vet. Yeah. He was an artillery mechanic. He was enlisted. He was an enlisted artillery mechanic at Kaysan. Yeah, I always thought the world of him too. Another guy that left a, a positive imprint on me at my time in Somalia, along with uh, then Lieutenant Colonel Neller, who had uh, the LAR battalion. That's right. Yeah. So, so then you had the battery command. Uh-huh. Did you leave 211 right after your battery command? What was next for no, you? No, I had, so I had the ops job for a year. So I was the S3 for a year and we left, um, and headed back East where I was a student at command and staff. And from there I, I, I received follow on orders to be an instructor at captain's career course, which very rewarding, uh, great three years. I mean, not a whole lot of leadership challenges per se, 
really none, Dave, to be honest with you. I mean, there are no nuggets to really take from that because I'm dealing with a bunch of motivated captains who are there to learn, who, you know, want to hear what I have to say and they want to share their experiences. It was just a great time. The coolest thing about it is, you know, when I finished up there after three years, this would have been 2004 when we left there and went back to second battalion 11th Marines. As at this time, Mike Frazier was the commanding officer and I was his exo. Three months later, we were in Ramadi and we went to Ramadi without our guns. We didn't take our howitzers. We went as a provisional military police slash infantry security battalion. But my experience as as an instructor for three years, it created so many relationships with captains all across the Marine Corps of every MOS that when I would be on a convoy, you know, going through Anbar province, it was nothing for me to hit, you know, four or five captains from different units that I'd served with at school. And of course they always wanted to, you know, make me feel good, take care of me. And it's like, guys, don't, don't do anything special. But it, it was just, that was a rewarding period for me. And it just it created a lot of relationships that I'm just so happy, you know, to have. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple questions about that? Cause it's kind of interesting. Uh, first question is when you were an instructor at captain's career course, were those captains, was that prior to Iraq kicking off or did you start to have it some? Was. It was. So, so I, I started in 2001, the summer of 2001. So Iraq, OIF really kicked off in the uh, February period of 2003. So we actually sent a few captains out from that class early to go round out some some units. And then, of course, you know, during the course of that year, not to dig up old bones, but, you know, we thought it was mission accomplished. So we had won that war and whatnot. And everybody comes home and everybody's happy. And we realized quickly that that war really was just getting started. Um, and so the following summer in 2004 is when I left. And that's when the Marine Corps really established a heavy footprint around that time, early 2004 in Ambar province, taking over for the 82nd Airborne Division. And we were there for a number of years after that. Right. Um, so none of your captains had were post-Iraq. No. Okay. Nope. nope. So question for you on that. You're a major at the time, right? Yeah. As an instructor. Okay. So you've got a bunch of captains. I'm just going to close my eyes and imagine you stand in front of a, a classroom of 25 captains mm-hmm. of, of pilots, infantry, yeah. like across the board, right? All. So you have no opportunity to really observe them in leadership roles. No. Other than their own personal behavior. That is exactly spot on. You're spot on. And in an academic environment. How or, or were you able to assess their leadership just based on those observations, even though it was just in a classroom? Like, was there an opportunity to say, like, the Captain Jones over here is such a fantastic leader? Were they... Were they still, did you still see those captains you just kind of knew? Yeah, absolutely, David. Don't, don't bear in mind. And how did you know that then? That's, that's kind of what I want to get to. You know, by that point in time, again, I'd spent 12, 14 years in the Marine Corps. And you could see, even in a classroom environment, you could see selflessness rise. You could see a work ethic rise. And I would say, you know, I, you could. And I did. I would look at a captain and I would think, this guy's going to fail. And I had one who was just so lazy. We shouldn't have graduated him. And I recommended to the director we not graduated, but we did. And, he, you know, he did the right thing. He did another year or two in the Marine Corps and got out. But, yeah, you could absolutely see it. They weren't evaluated on it, but you could certainly see it. 
And you knew, I mean, you could see the guys who carried themselves and, and had the respect and, and admiration of their classmates and who would go the extra mile because, hey, I, I know a little bit more about this than you do. So let me show you, let me help you out here. Yeah, absolutely. Did you write fitness reports on them? Was that like an no, observable no, no, no. period? No, there was no, no okay. evaluation. It wasn't, okay. No evaluation. It was, it was a school year. So, you know, the expectation was you come, you learn, you do the reading, you do the work and, and you graduate and then you go back to, uh, to your MOS. Yeah. Did you ever see any students actually kicked out of the school because of performance or did, did most did of them not. kind of slide I did through? Not. I did not. I think, I think something happened shortly before I got there, a year or two before I got there. Some some wackiness going on, but I never saw anybody get kicked out. I, I had one personally that I felt should not graduate, but we graduated him. And like I said, he he recognized that he was not put, pulling his weight on the rope, if you will, and he got out. So I respect him for that. So interesting because you were a major, but in in measured in years, they were really not that far behind you. Four or five years? Four. Yeah, four or five years. But it's all, it was all, you know, that's four or five years of fairly significant experience, especially in light of what we're teaching there. Right. But, but I guess what I was getting at was you've been out for five years, right? Mm-hmm. Four, right. So any captains from your class now generals? I, you know, I don't know. I would not be surprised. Yeah. I would have to go, I would have to look, but I, I would suspect there might be. Interesting. It would probably be interesting to, to look back and say like, Never saw that coming. He's a or I saw it. I saw it a mile away. You know that'd probably be pretty interesting. Yeah, that's to, really that. I could I say that more about some of my peers. Some of the guys <laughs> yeah, that so I, do I, man. That I grew up with, and I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'd love to take some jabs at him right now, just out of some fun, but I won't. No, I. You know, it's it. It goes back to what I was saying an hour ago, which was, you know, I I just I close my eyes and I see some of those guys as um, you know, just lieutenants. But but your time at teaching there at the school is an interesting, quick trailer to the movie introduction because you had an, a unique experience that related back to your time at 211 with a Marine officer who became a general officer and retired as a two-star who was going to be a future guest on the podcast as well. You want to talk about General Spees at all? or Sure. So, so my first two years at the schoolhouse, the director was a, a great officer named John Keenan. And my last year was the director was at the time, Colonel Mel Spees. Now, you need to make note of this, Dave, and you need to ask him about this, because this goes back to the discussion from 211, where when he first came and took over the schoolhouse and he's walking the corridor and he's going into all of his instructor's offices, doing one on one time with them. He walks in my office and I had a guide on on the wall from Gulf Battery, 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines. Which and that's I like commanded. a flag. That's a flag. A guy that's like a flag. Right, right, a flag. Yeah. And, uh, and he looks at it and he looks at me and he said, Matt, when were you in 211? And I knew this question was coming and I did not take, <laughs> I did not take it down because I wasn't going to be that guy. And I said, Colonel, I was there then. And he goes, you know what I'm talking about? And I said, yes, sir. I said, I was the opso during all of that. And I said, I'm just grateful to God. And by the grace of God, we didn't kill you or anybody else. Because again, that battalion was so bad and the leadership failure from the top, that's so permeated that we had firing incident after firing incident. And what I mean by that for your listeners is when you're training with artillery, you're shooting real explosives, hundred pound explosives. Yeah. There's no such thing as a blank. No, there's no such thing as a blank. 
and you know they're going you know 10 12 miles and and when you mess something up and they land in the wrong place it puts people in peril and we did that multiple times during that that training exercise and one time it came very close to Colonel Spies who was an instructor at that time in 29 Palms before he came to be my boss so so yeah that was my that was my start with uh, General Spies but we we quickly developed a very strong bond and, and you'll learn this by talking to him the guy just you know he's so passionate about leadership and doing things the right way and he's he's a very, very dedicated, strong family guy. And he, he took a shine to my family, which I'm all grateful for. And we've remained close over the years. But uh, yeah, your, your listeners will enjoy hearing from him, I guarantee it. Well, I will be sure to get the other side of that story, literally, uh, from the receiving end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just to, to give what you said some context about, you know, the seriousness of that. In the artillery community, there are so many checks and systems in place that are put in place to ensure that those live projectiles don't go anywhere near people that they could injure or, or are not are not going to go anywhere they shouldn't go. There's a lot of, and we won't get into all the technical aspects of that, Matt, but suffice it to say, if the listeners can imagine, there's a lot of safety and we literally call it that safety and precautions and procedures in place to ensure that, that the probability of artillery shell going somewhere where it isn't supposed to go doesn't right. happen. And so sure. when it does go somewhere that it's not supposed to happen, there is such a cataclysmic failure, not just with one person, usually not just with one person, but when an artillery unit is firing shells somewhere that it shouldn't be, it is it is evidence of a massive systematic failure from echelons of leadership way higher than where the probably where the problem actually took place. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the testament to the poor leadership at 211 at the time was probably a lot more than just the guy that wanted to go back and take the shower because he didn't like showering in dirty showers. There was a whole lot going on there that you saw. And maybe a lesson to be learned there or to at least surface is that even with an all-star cast of artillerymen that you mentioned before, I know every single one of those Marines and hold them in the highest regard. And there were still leadership. There were still other leaders that poisoned the entire well of that battalion. That's a fact. That is a fact. It's it's a testament to, you know, people act the way they're treated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you went on, you deployed to Iraq with 211. And I don't know if you, if you want to share any stories from that, if there was any moments that you had, moments of leadership that were these crystallizing lessons learned, whether they were big or small. Well, the, the biggest thing there was, again, so now I've transitioned back to tremendous leaders. Mike Fraser was my battalion commander. Joe Dunford was the assistant division commander. He was a one-star at the time, so he was my reviewing officer, which would mean he was one, two levels above me. Oh, so that's how you knew him from the story before about the locker room. You that's knew correct. him before that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he wrote my evaluation. And General Natonsky as the commanding general of 1st Marine Division, and General Sattler was the commanding general of 1MAP. And, and and, and, and even in the most trying times, which was the Battle of Fallujah in November of 2004, you just felt like you were in good hands and uh, it made you willing to do things that didn't always make you comfortable, but you just felt like you were in good hands. And uh, it's just like, I just remember being in awe. It's like, this is what it's supposed to be like, as bad as this is. You know, I, I don't feel, I mean, I feel like I've got leaders who are focused on the mission, but also taking care of their people. And it was, it was tremendous. Yeah. 
Did you see, uh, did you see any tough decisions have to get made over there? Yeah, all the time. I mean, everything you did was a tough decision. You know, to send people into a building in the Battle of Fallujah was a tough decision. I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, everything you did was a risk that had to be balanced. But but people knew. Okay, this is this is what we're here to do, and that's what we did. Yeah, it's it, another interesting component of leadership, I think, too. Um, and maybe this isn't something that we do a very good job of training Marines or leaders on. What we expect them to exercise is risk management. I mean, we don't talk about risk management really, um, or how to calculate odds, or how to mitigate risk, even when you do have to send somebody into a building. Yeah, somehow we figure it out. That's correct. That's that. That's true. And so that that was that was a very challenging, very challenging time. I mean, that, that was, you know, a, a very bright spot of the war in terms of the the level of you know, the intensity level and, and the level of kinetic activity going on at the time. But but again, I, I I've never felt more comfortable with the leadership that was had had my had my overwatch. So I'm talking about bullets flying back and forth and and vehicles rolling over IEDs all the time. I'm talking about RPGs. I'm talking about mortar rounds coming into your paws on a, on a daily basis. All that. Right. Yeah. Just when I hear the word kinetic, I think back to uh, you know high school science class and and now we yeah. use that term like you know if it's so yeah. for for listeners that means like you know the shit's going down and. Leads flying both ways, and uh, yeah. it's synonymous with a firefight. So after two eleven, did you then go right to Anglico, or I did a little bit of time on the division staff, but it was not very significant because the division was spooling back to return to Iraq, and because I had been slated to take over Anglico, and Anglico had a deployment date that was a few months later. I did not go back to Iraq with the division. So I just did some time on the staff, um, just trying to keep things going in the rear, and then went over to Anglico in May of 2006. Right. Let's take a second and explain to people who aren't familiar with Anglico what it means. And as you're explaining it to everybody, associate it with what you were doing in the past as an artilleryman and how there's there's some overlap, but then there's a whole lot of new stuff too. Yeah. So Anglico is an acronym that stands for Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And it's, it's, like artillery, it, it falls into the family of fire support. Um, and what I mean by that is they, those, the Anglo, Marines of Anglico are trained, trained exceptionally well to call in artillery fire, uh, naval surface fire. And the real premium at the time that I was there was to um, provide terminal control of aircraft who are delivering ordnance onto enemy targets. Um, which was a very, very specialized skill. And I had a lot, I had quite a few of those guys who were certified to do that. The other element, the component of Anglico is that L word, liaison. Um, so what we, what we really function as an organization to perform is we will go and basically associate ourselves with units that aren't Marine Corps units, but they're operating in the Marine Corps area. So in my case, I had two platoons at First Anglico. One of the platoons was assigned to an Army Brigade combat team. So they would serve as a liaison between that Army Brigade liaison team and the higher Marine Corps headquarters. The other platoon was associated with and and attached to uh, an Iraqi division. And at the time, they were the most formidable, well-trained Iraqi division in all of Iraq. These were were old-school 
solid Iraqi soldiers. Um, but that's what we did. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, Dave, my key takeaway from Anglico is this. And you know this well. Anglico had been around for many, many years. And in the late 90s, Anglico went away as an organization when the Marine Corps was downsizing. Decision was made, right or wrong, that we're going to cut Anglico and save some, you know, save some manpower by doing so. Very soon after the Iraq war started, somebody said, hey, we need an organization that does X, Y, and Z. And somebody in this meeting says, well, you know, you just define what the Anglicos used to do. Wiser people in the Marine Corps, thank goodness, said, well, let's bring them back. And so they brought back the Anglicos. And I was the second commanding officer of first Anglico after it was stood back up. My predecessor, a guy we, you and I both know well, Mitch McCarthy, he goes all the way back to our first 205th Battalion, 11th yeah, Marines. Yeah, part of that Lethal, crew. Was part of the first CO. And I don't think there's anybody on the planet more perfect to stand an organization up than Mitch because he's so detail-oriented and so focused. And when it came to not just procuring material and equipment, but building a team along with his sergeant major at the time, and then became my sergeant major, Barry Morgan, they put together a, an organization that just was mind-boggling in terms of its talent and its expertise and its ability to accomplish the assigned mission. I've never seen anything like it. I've never saw anything like it before. I've never saw anything like it afterwards. So from a leadership perspective, my takeaway from my time at Anglico it took me about two weeks after getting on the ground there to realize that a whole lot of these guys are better at this shit than I am. And you know what? That's okay. That doesn't mean I'm not in charge. That doesn't mean I'm not the leader. But when it comes to the technical aspect and, you know, some of the real down and dirty of what, you know, an Anglo Marine is expected to do, I, I, I'm not, I'm not as good as these guys. And I had to, I came, I came to terms with that and realize, okay, I'm going to continue to learn and I'm going to, I'm going to try to learn from my guys every opportunity, every chance I get, but there's no shame in me acknowledging that when it comes to expertise and being experts at terminal control of aircraft and some of the other things, you know, the use of radios that Anglico Marines are famous for, I, I'm not as good as these guys and I probably won't be over the course of my two-year command. So accept it, acknowledge it, never stop learning. But don't let don't let you, that make you think you're not in command or you're not in charge because you still are. Right. I, I heard a, a really great quote uh, two weeks ago from uh, retired Lieutenant General Bob Milstead, who Boomer Milstead, who is a Cobra pilot. And he and he made the comment. I wrote it down. I'll never forget it. You don't have to be the best horseman in the cavalry to lead the cavalry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he just he just he just summed it up much better than I did. But it's saying the exact same thing. Right. Well, he's a three star general, Matt. You were a That's true. Say, right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And it's true. And leading in any organization, whether it's Anglico or, or a Cobra squadron or a, a civilian company, it's the same thing. Like you cannot expect to be a great leader and also be the expert in every single thing. And that's why that leadership skill of, of delegate, again, another leadership trait that's just aren't in our list of them, but like your ability to delegate to people and trust them and make sure that you're setting the conditions for success. 
of the people that are working under you so that you don't have to be that expert. All you have to do is set your expectations, set the conditions for the success and actually let them do their jobs. Yeah. And that's such a huge component of leadership. And and you just, you basically just said that. And, but I think it begins with an acknowledgement that at some level, when you're a leader, you do not have to be the expert in everything to be seen as, or conduct yourself as the leader. Yeah. So here's a quick story that happened a couple of years after my time at Anglico. This is, this was after my Pentagon tour and I'd gone back to division and I was about, you know, I was, few months from taking 06 command and I, I was in Afghanistan and I was G3 of first Marine division. So I was working hand in hand, you know, with math. And, and there were a couple of Lieutenant colonels on my staff who were in the three shot who worked for me. And they were, they were planners. They were plans officers. They'd gone through the formal pro, the formal schooling of learning how to be a planner. And one, one evening I was over in their office and we were just talking and they'd both been slated to take command of infantry battalions. And they asked me, they said, they said, sir, what, uh, what advice would you give us before we go into command? Like, what, what, what are some of the things you remember the best? And I said, well, I'll tell you something. I said, one of the things I remember best is I spent a lot of time being bored. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, when, let me tell you, I said, when you're in command, if you ever find yourself doing the kind of things you're doing now, and what I mean by that, if you're find yourself putting PowerPoint slide decks together or Excel spreadsheets or even writing orders other than just reviewing what's been given to you. If you ever find yourself doing that stuff, one of two things is going on. Either your command is in total disarray or you're hiding in your office because you're not comfortable being a commander. I said, this, this, I said, and I told him, I said, I was a plans officer before I went to Anglico also. So I know exactly what you're doing. I know how challenging it is, how time consuming. I said, but the one thing I learned within a couple of weeks of getting to Anglico is by 7.30 in the morning, I had read through all my emails and I'm sitting at my desk like, okay, what am I doing? What do I do now? And I said, you've got to be the guy who gets up and gets out of your office and goes to wherever your Marines are, whatever you have them assigned to do and spend time with them. And I said, if you ever find yourself as a commanding officer in your office working on your computer, you need to pause and ask yourself what's going on. Yeah. Cause that's not what you're getting paid to do. Right. And it was so interesting. Cause so rewind back to five eleven. we didn't even have computers back when you and I were lieutenants like that. Um, and so that wasn't instilled in us as young officers that became a trait of, of ours, you know, as yeah, we got older motor pool and, you know, or the gun park, wherever. Yeah, right. If you were to rewind back from that statement that you learned about as the commander of Anglico and not being the best horse rider in the cavalry and went back to your time as a lieutenant, uh-huh. do you think you did a good job delegating and letting the NCOs do their job? Or do you feel like you maybe would rewind and say, like, I wish I did that all differently? Uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm comfortable with what I did back then because again, going back to the story I told you about those guys educating me, I, I had so much trust in them and I, and, and that's where I feel like I really learned the skill of being a listener, um, was during my initial tour in 5th Battalion, 11th Marines and, you know, come to the realization that everybody has something to offer and, you know, it doesn't have to be your idea, you know, give the credit, you know, to somebody else and, 
you know, let it be their idea. And cause, cause when that happens now, they've got, they've got additional pride in it. And so now I was comfortable with, the, you know, the way it went at, at that point in time, where there's times, it, you know, maybe I didn't do it as much. Sure. But I think there are always factors driving that. Yeah. I remember that, that lesson I learned too, because then Staff Sergeant Ed Garrison, who I know you know, was was sure. was my equivalent of Staff Sergeant Avila. Was it Avila? Oliva. Joe Oliva, Oliva, right. Sorry. Sorry, Oliva, if you hear this. Um, same same thing with Ed Garrison, right? Which was, uh, he kind of taught me, hey, here's what you should be doing. Here's what you shouldn't be doing. Took an active interest in in training me too. And, I, you know, kind of a similar story. I'll just tell real quick. Says, I want to hear more about your stories and tell my own, but same thing. We had some inspection and, you know, Rob Davis was famous for going down and just tearing a Humvee apart and finding every single thing that was wrong with it. And, uh, we had some inspection going on and, and I was, I was worried that I was going to get my ass chewed if the inspection didn't go really well. And Garrison told me, he's like, Hey sir, the, the, the equipment's going to be ready for you to come down here and inspect it 1600. And so I'm like sitting in my office and I'm like, I need to get down there and supervise this look like I'm being proactive as a leader. And I walked down there, like, I don't know, call it 1300. He's like, sir, get out of here. He's like, don't, don't come down here until he's like, that would be like you getting ready for your portion of the inspection and captain Davis coming down here and looking at things before he's supposed to be looking at them. De- you've delegated this to corporal. Uh, I can't remember the corporal's name at the time, but yeah, learned, I learned something. I think if I were, if I were to look back on my lieutenant time, I'm pretty sure I could have done a better job of delegating, but I'm having a tough time remembering anything that I really had the authority to delegate. <laughs> there was always, there was always that too. Right. Exactly. So, so back to your Anglico time and I will, uh, I will just tell a quick story and I don't know if you remember this or not, but for, for the people listening, even though Matt and I came in at the exact same time, I, I had some broken time. So my, my promotions kind of froze in time. And so there was a, there was a time there where, I was still, a, when I came back on the reserves, I was still a captain and you guys were all lieutenant colonels and yeah. you had taken over Anglico, your change of command, and you invited me to come out. Right. So I was at your change of command with you, Hallinan, Mitch McCarthy, mm-hmm. Frazier was there. I think mm-hmm. Rice was there. A whole bunch of lieutenant colonels standing around after your change of command and me <laughs> yucking it up yeah. right, with the six lieutenant colonels as a captain. That's and right. I started getting the stink eye from one of your majors. And after we kind of all broke and we were walking back over, this is 511, you're still in the squad days. Like your office space wasn't even in the new building yet. That's right. Because you guys had just reactivated. And I remember one of them grabbed me off the side and they were like, hey, Captain, what the hell do you think you're doing over there yucking it up with the uh, with the commanders? I don't you know. What unit are you with? Who are you with? I'm like, oh, hey, sir, it's kind of a long story. I, I've known them for a lot. And they're like, they start dressing me down. <laughs> and then you guys are all walking away because you had some bar set up in the, yeah. <laughs> right. And you just kind of look over your shoulder and you yell, you're like, Hey, belly, come on, man, let's go. And I'm like, Hey, sir, I got to go. I see. Yeah. <laughs> you can cue my ass later. They had no idea what was going on. It was really funny. That is a good story. Didn't really think about what that had looked like with a, with a captain standing around just laughing. Like yeah. you were my old friends. Cause you were. That's right. And anyway, That's quick right. story. So, so Anglico that, so then you're, you're kind of, you're walking into a unit where you've got some background in it, but like you said, you didn't understand, you didn't have any background. Let's just, let's just say like terminal air control, right? Like being mm-hmm. a, a right. joint terminal air attack controller, which is, which is what Matt was saying before was like the guy who's basically on the radio telling a plane where he should be dropping his bombs. And you're talking on the radio, trying to get an airplane to drop his bombs correctly. Very difficult job, fast and um, three dimensional. You take them to combat. Mm-hmm. Talk about your leadership challenges, getting ready to go to combat, and then 
I'm assuming a completely different set of leadership challenges when you were in combat. Yeah. So, so getting ready for combat, believe it or not, Dave was relatively simple because at the time the Anglicos were just being stood back up and there were only two of us. So my guys were on a seven, five rotation. What I mean by that, they spent seven months in Iraq. They came home for five and then, which is when I took command during that five month period. And then we went right back. So it was basically just some refresher training, making sure our equipment was all good to go. And then before you knew it, we were back. And I remember my guys telling me, because most of them, you know, the guys who were returning, they went back to the same fighting position that they had left five months earlier. And they're, they're like, you know, so it just feels like we were gone for the weekend. Right. And are you just basically relieving in place you back and forth with second angle code, the sister, the sister unit, right? It's just you two back and forth at the time. And I was then relieved by fifth. They got the Okinawa unit stood up. And so with the, they finally got some breathing room. Right. And that was Joe Schrader, right? That was Joe Schrader. Yeah. That's he's right. a general now that's, too. That's correct. Yeah. So they, they came in and, and relieved us. So that finally gave some breathing room to first and second Anglicos. So when you talk about the leadership challenges in country during combat, here's the one that I agonized over the most, Dave. And, and I, you know, I had such trust and confidence in those guys. Those guys were so good. Again, I can't emphasize enough how good those guys were. Um, so I never worried that they were going to fail or even that they would, they would do something absentmindedly incorrectly. I just, it just never, but my deal was this. So our organization, because of our mission was spread out over a wide area. I mean, we covered all of Ambar province, right? From first brigade platoon was in Habania with the first Iraqi division. Second brigade platoon was in Ramadi with the army's third brigade combat team. And their teams were even broken down and spread out further. As a commanding officer, on one hand, I felt obligated. I need I needed to go see those guys. You know, you know, I had to see everybody at least once a month, right? Because that was my job. I needed to be out there. They needed to see that I cared. They needed to see that I was willing to put myself at risk. But then I had to balance that with every time I do that, everybody in my convoy is at risk of being killed. My sergeant major is at risk of being killed. There's so many things that can go wrong on any given night in any given convoy in Iraq at that time. So again, you're talking about balancing the risk versus what I should be doing as a commander. And I, I agonized over that. It's like I knew every time I left that gate at, at Al-Assad that I was putting people at risk. But I, you know, and I had to balance it. Okay, but I need to be out and be in front of these guys and let them know that I care and that I'm I'm taking risk too. But it was, it, I agonized over that. I really did. And, I, and it's it's compounded by the fact that, and, and for the listeners, you know, Anglico is sort of a, a facilitator. You're not really a, an infantry unit that's take this road or take this intersection. No, or, exactly. Right, you're, right, you're, you are you providing these ground. teams to everybody else. You don't hold ground, right? Great way to put it. And so that means your job of going out and seeing the Marines is infinitely more, what is it, infinitely, a lot more complicated than for a typical infantry battalion commander. Yeah, because I, I don't own the ground they're sitting on. Yeah, I don't own the ground they're sitting on. I own them, but I have to coordinate everything through somebody else who owns the battle space and, and understand, talk to them about, okay, what's going on in this area? You know, what sort of threat is out there today? It was, that was a challenge. And, and fortunately, you know, we, we were able to balance it. 
What were some of the differences that you saw in your leaders, your younger leaders? I'm going to ask specifically about the captains. What were some of the differences that you saw in their leadership styles that were were noteworthy or even worthy of mention because they weren't that good? Did you have problems out there? Did you have any mavericks? And I, I really get interested in this maverick thing maybe a little bit because of my own personality, but also because so many of our icons, whether it's in the Marine Corps or you know, even in the movies, I mean, hell, we, we had a movie about a Maverick with a character that was actually named Maverick and yeah. how we, we revere these char- quote unquote characters. Chesty Puller was probably a Maverick yeah, or like Gunny Highway from, you know, or mm-hmm. the great Santini, right? Another one, like these Mavericks and we revere them in our lore, but we despise them when they're in our units, you know? Yeah. And so I'm fascinated to ask people who are on the podcast, like, do they remember having any Mavericks? And if so, did you foster that, mentor them, or were they so aggravating that you were trying to get them out of your life? So in Anglico, it's a great question. So none of my officers fell into that category because every single officer there, Dave, was basically hand-selected. They applied. When Anglico stood back up, they applied to come there. And these are guys, we talk about, did they have OIF experience? These guys had all been in Iraq and they knew they were going back with Anglico and they knew they were going to go back twice and they all still wanted to be there. That's what was so phenomenal to me about this organization. These guys, they could have gone to the depot. They could have gone and done something different that would have given them, you know, a chance to slow down for a little bit. But instead, they, they went from the operating forces as an infantry officer or an artillery officer or a pilot to Anglico knowing what they were doing. So I didn't have it there. I did have a staff NCO who fell into that category and I did foster it and so did my sergeant major. And, you know, here's what we did, you know, and we knew, and I think this individual knew his, his, the number of times he was going to be promoted again were not going to be many because he chose to do things a certain way. He chose to be a maverick. He chose to be a maverick. And he said, you know what? We will embrace that as long as, you know, you can be cantankerous with us if you want. You can debate as long as you remain professional and accomplish your mission. But, you know, you don't have to do it this way, but we're okay with it if you do. And you see that in the civilian world too. The big difference is that you can normally associate and tolerate a maverick because there is some sort of financial financial success measurement to it. So like he's a maverick, but he, he brings in a lot of revenue or he's a maverick and he, but he, he's responsible for a lot of sales. And, and so you're, you get tolerant. I think you almost breed that behavior. It builds on itself in the civilian world. And, and so it's also a tough challenge for people in the civilian world to, to figure out how do they, how do they control, how do they, how do they tame this tiger that they have held by the tail? And in the military, it's different because I, there's no measurement of financial success attached to a maverick. There's always, how difficult are they making my life relative to how much are they? That's right. There's, there's some truth to that, but at the same time, if they're, if they're moving the needle and they're accomplishing the mission and they've got the respect of their subordinates, I I can live with it. As long as, as long as it doesn't cross a certain line, um, I, I can, I can live with the debate. I don't mind listening to somebody else's idea. I also think that's a, it's a critical component to leadership too, because I I feel like in the military, one of the things that, so if I was the commandant, I think one of the things I would try to encourage officers to do is if you have the time to allow your Marines to share in the decision-making process, you should probably capitalize on that opportunity because you're training them through that. So I try to do that a little bit in my reserve battery because I, I, I basically had the luxury of time every single drill weekend I wanted to. And I, and I found that the more I involved 
the junior Marines in the decision-making process, the more ownership they took in it. Kind of an interesting topic about leadership and and sharing the decision-making and whether or not that that fosters some better Marines, but difficult leadership in Iraq because your, your officers were so far spread out. How about the Marines? Were they the same? Were they also handpicked? The staff and COs were, the junior Marines were not, but when you had that much talent above them that, you know, and we, you know, we had our, we had our occasional issue, you know, mostly in garrison, the guy gets a DUI or a guy pops positive and that, that's going to happen in any organization. But by and large, especially once we got in country, they were, they were surrounded by so much talent. They started, they operated at the same level. It's like being in a, you know, a sporting event, you know, you, you, you play to the level of your competition. Let's take a few minutes. Cause I do want to talk about, this is probably a pretty valuable story for listeners to hear because you had a very strong connection with your Sergeant major. It's, I, I have this theory about leadership too, which probably isn't embraced by the military and maybe more of a function of just my time in the civilian world. But I have this theory, like having a personal relationship with them that if you weren't in the Marines, you could probably see yourself being friends with them. And I have always found my best relationships with my staff NCOs to be the ones who, you know, I, I also had a personal relationship with. I don't know if we give ourselves permission to be able to have more of a personal relationship that we do with, with enlisted Marines when we're officers, but you did. Yeah. So that actually goes back to, for me, recruiting duty, and I'll throw out this name again, Rob Gates, before I left the battalion to go to Oklahoma City. He was a former recruiter, and he said, look, XO, you're going to get out there, and he goes, just understand, you're going to develop a different level of relationship with some of your staff and COs than you ever had here. And he said, and that's okay. He said, there's no, there aren't, there aren't many other officers for you to you know, associate with. And you're going to be at a lot more functions and probably having a lot more beers and doing stuff with staff and COs than, than you thought you would. And he said, that's fine. He goes, just make sure it doesn't cross the line. And he was completely, he was hundred percent accurate. I'm still very close to several of my staff and COs from my time at Oklahoma city. And then when I went to Anglico, to me, it was just natural. And I told, you know, there had been some rumors when I took, when I got there, that there was some friction between staff, some staff NCOs and some officers. And then it even bubbled over into some of the wives network, Dave. And, you know, you've seen all that stuff before. And I just, I told my wife, I told Carol at the time, I said, look, there is one person in this organization who is number one to me. And it's always going to be like that. And I said, that's my Sergeant Major. And I said, if that, you know, knowledge guides you and the relationships you want to form with the wives in the group, that's fine. If it doesn't, that's fine too. But I said, and she's like, even more so than your officers. And I said, yeah, I said more so than my officers. And he's my Sergeant Major. I mean, you know, he's going to have more control over whether I come back alive than any, any of those officers will. And I said, and if I lose him, I lose the command. It's that simple. And so uh, I was very fortunate that he was a, he's an incredibly professional, dedicated guy who, who the Marines just were in awe of. And, and because I gave him the platform, he in turn ensured things moved the right way. Isn't it amazing the, the impact one person can have on an organization with hundreds of people in it and a testament to his leadership. And I, I never worked with him. Actually, I've never met him. Well, wait, I would have met him at your change of command, but briefly, right? Yeah, you would have met him there briefly, pro- briefly, probably. You're probably lucky. Don't take that the wrong way. I mean, imagine how hard your life would have been if you didn't have him or if you had somebody else who was not a good sergeant major. Yeah, I know. I was lucky, dude. That, that, trust me. 
I, re- I recognize that. I really do. Well, yeah, I've, I've got my theory about making our own luck too, but maybe that's something for another podcast. <laughs> what I really want to do is I, I just want to take a second and kind of roll up, right? You had 5.11, you had the great relationship with your staff and CEOs. You had, you learned about listening. You learned about the power of mentorship. You went to Oklahoma City, you had a challenging um, time with that tragedy, but you it reinforced the training that you had and, and how those basic things that you learned just kind of kick in innately and instinctively. You took that experience, you went to 2.11, you had a, you, you saw a bad command climate further imprinting on you the, the need to actually be a great leader, set an example, don't put yourself first. Again, all sounding like very basic things when you roll through them, but these are all very formative things. You go and teach a captain's career course. You get exposed to some great captains. You also bump into uh, General Spies and, and you see the power, maybe maybe the power of forgiveness, maybe, or, or acceptance, yeah. <laughs> let's call it. And then rolling back into 211, deploying to combat, and then ending up at Anglico and, and all the challenges there with command being so spread out and the agony over those decisions. All of those things kind of, in my mind, when I think about those, all roll them up together, you know, those are some fantastic connections that led you to a command in combat where all of those things had to connect through to create the leadership style that you had there and you were successful with. I would agree with that. And so my final question as we wrap up is this, if you think through all of our leadership traits and principles, can you think of a word or a principle or something that isn't included in that list that's absolutely essential for a leader to have and foster and incorporate into their leadership style that is critical to becoming and being a great leader? It's a great question, Dave. I think to me, it would be, and you may be surprised by this, it would be compassion. Maybe something I wouldn't have said 15, 20 years ago, but I do believe it now. And just, again, I, 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 I put compassion in the same compartment of my leadership toolbox that I put in selflessness and just, just being concerned about people to the point that when there are challenges, you first thought is, how do I help this guy? And that doesn't mean being weak. That doesn't mean bailing them out of a bad situation they might have put themselves into. It means understanding, trying to understand the situation that they may be going through and can I help them? Because I know if I do, it will in turn improve the overall performance of the organization. And that is such a fantastic wrap up. It wouldn't have been as much fun having you lead with that in the first five minutes, because then we would have missed an hour and 55 minutes of great stories and listening to all of your experiences and hearing how all of these things connect together. But what you just said is probably the most pivotal thing of this whole two hours is that compassion is so important and it's not something that we're taught. And you, you said it really clear, which was maybe 15 years ago, you would have never said that, but now you do. And there was some sort of, connection of all of your experiences together through all of your times in the Marine Corps and all of your time as a leader to where you got to a point where you realized that something that didn't come naturally to you way back when and something that isn't spelled out on our leadership books uh, is so critical to leading people, which is compassion and having compassion for other people because people act the way they're treated. And if you treat people with compassion and or you can say empathy, caring about them was the other the other way you said it. Those are things that aren't obvious to young leaders, 
but maybe they ought to put in their own toolkit earlier so that they have the luxury of applying that leadership trait or principle to their early time in career. Because if you flash back to your time at 511 and you had been more cognizant of the power of compassion, you could have had an even bigger impact on Marines' lives than you did. Not that you didn't. I'm just saying like, it's, it's interesting that all the stories that you've just shared with everybody for two hours has led to a statement where compassion is something that is overlooked is a very powerful takeaway. And we'll go ahead and and end it there, Matt. I I want to tell you how much I appreciate time today, sharing your stories. I know some of them are difficult. Uh, I appreciate more than I can ever articulate our friendship that we've had for three decades. Uh, I am, I'm honored to be your friend. I'm honored to have served with you and this country owes you a great debt of gratitude for everything that you've done over the past 30 years. And there is one thing I know is that uh, great leaders create two or three generations worth of good Marines as the examples that they set get passed on down through the people that they mentor into the next people. And I can assure you that you had that impact on probably 60 years worth of Marines that are Uh, either retired and or still serving. So you put in a lot of time in the Marine Corps and you left it better than you found it. I appreciate you sharing some of your stories with us. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. It's been a true pleasure. And like I said, to start with any time spent with you, I consider to be good time. And I I appreciate you inviting me and I I look forward to listening to your future guests. I really do. Thanks. I I look forward to catching up with you for a beer or two. So with that, um, thank you for listening to Moments in Leadership with retired Marine Corps Colonel Matt Cooper, a very old friend of mine and one hell of a Marine. So Semper Fi, Matt. Semper Fi, Dave. Be safe, my friend.